0: This is Jewish Board Talk with Cherie Zephyr only on 101.9 High FM. So begins the chapter on veteran journalist Benjamin Pogrand in Jonathan Ans's book, Menches in the Trenches. And I quote, During apartheid, Benjamin Pogrand made headlines met deadlines, crossed color lines, and stood on the front lines of press freedom. He was put on trial several times, put in prison once, and was considered a threat to the state by security police. I am absolutely delighted to have Benjamin as my guest now, joining me from Israel, to tell me more. Benjamin, welcome and thank you so much for joining me.
1: lovely to see you again.
0: Benjamin, um, so you are one of the mentors that I know, and um, I've had been lucky enough to spend time with you. And in fact, this is not the first time I've introduced you, but it was certainly the easiest to introduce you. And I know that I once introduced you as an anti-apartheid activist, and you corrected me. You said you're a journalist, and you are just doing your job. Do you want to take me back to that time?
1: I'm actually at the middle. There's a group of American blacks who are planning a number of docudramas about uh, apartheid South Africa, and I've been featuring quite large in them, and going on for months. And so far, I've done about 45, 50 hours of Zoom interviews. The questions you're asked have been very much in my mind for months, you know, not just what you did, but why you did it. And i have had to go away and sit in a chair and look into the distance and think, well, why did you do that? Why did you do that? Why didn't you do that? Why were you too scared to do that, whatever it might be? And the answer is simple. I don't have an answer. It was something that had to be done. I set off as a journalist when I first went into journalism. I want to change the world. What saved me was I'd just done three degrees at UCT, including a postgraduate degree, and I had a very solid academic founding. And that saved me, because instead of getting wild stuff, because this is a legitimate part of journalism, advocacy journalism. You know, that, that's, you've got to know, people must know who you are and what you're doing. And I didn't want to be an advocacy journalism. I want to be an advo- a, a journalist. And um, so I got rid of that idea of changing the world pretty quickly and had followed an academic rigor, which was very important in investigations in South Africa. Cindy, I think he said I'd been um, charged seven times. There um, was only about three or four times, but I was involved in about, I actually have, I, I can't work out the number, about 20 to 30 court cases. And that's just, for four years of my life, dominated my life. We went from one court to another. But the basic point was things had to be done, and there was no one else to do them. It was starvation. No one else was reporting it. There was this huge mass of the majority of people who were not being reported. It's hard to believe that. But at the end of the fifties, the mainstream press in South Africa, apart from the tiny papers like the Communist New Age, and it was just just not all that was it. And they just did it in a not in a consistent foot and no one paid any attention anyway. But black people did not feature in newspapers you know if you can conceive of that the newspapers were white owned entirely white run white editorial aimed at white advertisers women mainly white women all white occasionally blacks were referred to if there was a mine fall in johannesburg and you'd have a, a story saying um, mr van der Merwe and six natives died in a rock fall Yesterday at such and such a mine. Or in times of riots, the police opened fire on a, on a mob of, uh, stone-throwing natives. And occasionally a black leader might get about, you know, an inch or two in the paper. And I looked at this and at UCT I'd been non-racial. I'd got to know mainly colored because there weren't many black students then and black students. And I'd come out of Hubble M which had given me some very really basic social values and values of justice. So I just did non-racial work at UCT. And when I went into the wider world, I was astonished. Most of the population weren't being reported. So I started doing it. And I was lucky, because a new editor had taken over, Lawrence Gando, a few months before. And he'd been writing political commentaries of a depth of, a, of an intelligence unknown in South Africa. He was analyzing apartheid with the most wonderful flow of English. It was just beautiful, and the whole country was gripped by Ganda's columns. And I joined this newspaper, and fortunately for me, he shared my belief. It was now the editor in the country who would who allow me to do what I did, and then his successor Raymond Lowe, who was a close friend, they both became we came with him, very close friends. Ray did the same thing, and that's what happened. Robert Subukwe, who was my close friend, but he went to prison, and um, he needed things. He was in solitary confinement. There was no one else doing it.
0: Something had to be done. So I did it. You say you did it. Something had to be done. You did it. You went into the townships. Was it, were you shocked by what you saw?
1: Oh, well, every day, look, I spent half my life wandering around Soweto. I had a permit most of the time. 24 hours a day, I could go wherever I wanted to. And I covered schools. I'd go to a school. I'd find kids sitting on the, on the ground in the school. No desks, no books with a form bench as their desk, kneeling on the floor. I covered starvation, the first big series of starvation uh, in the country. And I was just shocked out of my mind wherever I went, just the way we were treated, the past laws, which I watched, I watched me being arrested. I, I looked at, I went from, you see, it was a turbulent era at the end of the 50s and the 60s in black politics. Blacks were beginning, the resistance was really building up. And I was there. i got to know Mandela, Tambo, the Thule, um, uh, Sabukwe, all the leaders. I was there when they were there. Um, and um, from politics, I went on to the whole range of black existence, from sewerage to schools to everything. And I was covering the surrounding three countries. There were then uh, Lesotho, which was the Sutiland, uh Swaziland, uh, Eswatini now and and now Botswana so I led a very active life um, and let me tell you because I'm talking to you on a Jewish program a lot of this the basic impelling force was being Jewish and that is because of the Holocaust my family was wiped out in Lithuania and one of the searing memories of my life as a young boy was seeing my father cry when he got news of the last of his family had been wiped out in Lithuania. And that was imprinted on my psyche. And I grew up with that. I've read a huge amount about National Socialism and also Stalinism. I saw them, I got involved at an early age, close friends of mine in Huppelmen became members of the Underground Communist Party. And I was asked to join at an early stage. When I was 16, 17... I discovered the writing of Arthur Kussler and the other book by Douglas Hyde, The God That Failed. And I had a personal experience with my erstwhile colleagues, a very searing personal experience, where they betrayed me because I wasn't one of them. And I looked back and I thought, any ideology which puts ideology and the party ahead of personal loyalty, uh uh-uh. And I became a total enemy of communism and of Stalinism throughout my life
0: were also harassed often by the police. you spoke about your court cases and I know in just um, conversations that we've had, you point to like almost the absurdity of the police and police action and the stories of like things that you couldn 't make up because they were so bizarre i don 't know if you want to share one of those stories
1: just what i've been talking about, the head of um the security police uh, at one time and then he became commissioner of police was Johan Kutsir. And I got on very well with Johan except I gathered Johan had an obsessive belief that I was a communist. And Rudy Mandela told me that when she was in, in detention at one stage and Kutsir interrogated her, he told her police career would not be complete until I was behind bars. <laughs> to have this hanging over you But the story, actually, it's a Jewish story again. When I was on bail in the youth, you know, four years of my life went on these wretched trials, and um, I was on bail, and I had to report to the Hillbrow police station every Thursday between one and two o'clock. You go and you sign the book. It sounds easy, but I was then divorced and living on my own, and I'd wake up nights before thinking, hell. When must I report? And then for nights after, I'd wake up and think, did you report? It was extraordinary. Anyway, it was Yom Kippur, and I was observant then, except we all drove cars, of course. And my little girl, Jenny, was in about five or six. And in, on Yom Kippur afternoon, which happened to be on a Thursday, we were driving around. And I had a little piping voice on the back seat saying, Daddy, did you report to the police? And I suddenly realized <coughs> I had forgotten. And I panicked. I was now to be immediately arrested. I mistreated my bail. So I went screaming up to the Hilbra police station. I ran in, and there was a burly sergeant there. And I stammered out my apologies. Said, look, it's my day of atonement. I've been in synagogue since last night. I've been fasting all day. Not three in the afternoon. Now. I'm sorry, you know, I'm late to sign the book. He goes red right in the face, and he says to me, the law must be obeyed. So I'm in trouble now. And, you know, you have these instinctive, if, if you spent a lifetime, you couldn't think of a, of doing this. But instinctively, I drew myself up, I pointed to the sky under the, and I declaimed, the law of God is above the law of man. And he was a good Calvinist and there was nothing he could say about that. And he sort of gave me a disgusted look and he said, all right, sign the book. No a word about it. General had they tried to prosecute a Jew for failing to report on Yom Kippur, even the Jewish community as it was then, with Huta the chairman of the United Hebrew Congregation, which to me was the low point of the Jewish community, um, even he would not have dared prosecute me on that one. Anyway, that's one of the stories.
0: Benjamin, when you look back, I mean, it does seem like, again, having heard so many of your stories, it seems like the time uh, the anti-apartheid movement was full of characters, larger-than-life characters, almost from both sides or all sides, that people were either particularly brave or particularly evil, and life seemed to take on a different kind of meaning or am I wrong. No,
1: yeah, you're right. Uh, in fact, it's, Anne and I were talking about this the other day, and I've always thought South Africa was um, a furnace. It destroyed you. The evil was so rampant. The oppression was so terrible. The past laws, poverty, the uh, growing power of the police could lock you away forever under the Terrorism Act. Uh it is a terrifying society, especially if I was white. I was lucky. I got away with a great deal. As a black man, I wouldn't have existed You know, I would have been wiped out at an early stage. But if you came through the furnace, it hardened you. And there were remarkable people. In fact, what I like about Jonathan's book, uh, apart from his very generous reference to me, uh, which is obviously appreciated, is that he's written about people who are normally not referred to and yet deserve to be recognized. And it's important to remember them for future generations that there were these people, quiet people who did little things. In fact, I must tell you at the moment, I'm writing another book, and one of the major chapters has simply got the heading Heroes. And I start off saying Mandela, the Latuli, Bayes, Nodir, Sabuque. the names are known. There were so many others who did brave things, and they need to be remembered just because they deserve it, and also for the future, for future generations. And I've been writing these stories. You know, four or five hundred words on a person. I mean, have you ever heard of Robin Lazar? Robin was a witness. He was a chemical analyst, and we used him in one of the prisons trials to give purely technical evidence. And he had a private practice. And this wasn't something he wanted in his life, but he was called as a technical expert and paid the usual witness fees. Utah was a prosecutor. And I think there was probably something twisted. there was obviously something twisted about Utah and I think especially when he encountered Jews in criminal cases, and Robin was Jewish, and Utah's cross-examination of him was savage. I've been reading about it. Vicious. Went for him personally, doubting his integrity. And Robin, who was this quiet guy giving technical evidence about electrodes, he stood up to it with total dignity and quietness, and simply said, I indignantly, indignantly, You know, reject your attack on me as that I'm biased. I'm giving technical evidence, that's all. And that's one of the unsung heroes now I'm writing about.
0: That's the sort of thing I mean. Benjamin, I-, I love talking to you, and I'm always very grateful that you write because um I often refer to your book, How Can a Man Die Better? and Robert Sabuque, and, and it outlines a beautiful friendship that you had with him. Also your book, um, Drawing Fire on the Israel Apartheid Analogy. So I'm looking forward to this book too. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I'd just like to say thank you very much for being my guest, and I look forward to our next chat.